across the city and South Cambridgeshire. On FM, digital and your mobile. Cambridge 105 Radio. I'm going to read you the menu. It's fantastic. So we get better flavour because of the fen soil. I've drunk more beer since I came here and bought my two barrels than I've ever done in my life before, I think. I shouldn't have said almonds. They don't make it from almonds. <laughs> so you've got this big sticky mess when you start off. Pizza pot pipes! My wife's cakes are selling up hot cakes. Brilliant, thank you. The time is right for this sort of thing. Food is everything. Cambridge is right for this sort of thing. What's it like? <laughs> Good afternoon and welcome to Flavour with an hour of local food and drink news. I'm Matt Bentman in the studio today with Sue Bailey. Our colleague Alan Order will be back for the next one. So, what's coming up on today's show, Sue? Well, we have a visit to Flourish Farm to check out their new farm shop. Flourish use regenerative farming techniques to grow more than 800 varieties of fruit and vegetables, mainly for top restaurants in Cambridge and London, and they're now opening a farm shop. Mm, did you know that you can find grapes growing in the centre of Cambridge? I go sniffing around church grounds for something that I didn't hear through the grapevine. Mm -hmm. And indeed, what you can and can't find is a subject the foraging chef Steve Thompson tackles today. We also have plenty of local food and drink news too, so let's get going. So one of the more obvious truisms of food is that you can't have good food without good ingredients. It doesn't matter how good the chef is if the ingredients aren't up to scratch. Some of Cambridge's and London's best restaurants buy fruit and veg from Flourish. Now, this is a farm based out in Linton, well, near Hildesham, I think, and you can buy some of their produce from Meadows in Eltersley Avenue. But a new outlet is about to open, and it's Flourish's own farm shop. Alan went along recently and he met with its founder, Calixta Kilanda, to ask about the farm shop and what they do at Flourish to make sure that their food is of the best quality. First question, when is the shop going to open? So we're hoping to open in the first week of November, but I don't want to put, put a date on it just yet because we still um, have some building work to do and some final touches uh, before the shop is going to be ready for visitors. We are obviously going to be selling things that we produce here on the farm. So we do cut flowers, herbs, salads, lots of different vegetables, but also we're going to be supplying um, items from other local farms and from other producers. So we'll hopefully have quite a wide range range of different food products but the focus is very much local and it's also very much British and as direct as possible from the producers and the makers themselves. Right so there's going to be quite a wide variety of, of things you're selling Yes. and also I mean I, I did wonder what you would do in the sort of the barren months of winter but you're obviously going to have a lot of things in that will be sellable during yeah, winter. Yeah I hope so. We've um we are hoping that our, our neighbours and other producers will be able to sort of bulk up our offering from the farm. And over the years, we have tried to sort of increase the range of, of winter greens, roots and other things that we do grow he, uh, here from the winter as well. But one of the, sort of the, the great draws of, of your shop will be the fact that people can buy your produce because your produce is quite 
special, really. Could you say something about what makes it special? <laughs> I think one of the unusual things about what we do is sort of the varieties that we grow. So right from the very beginning, there has been a, a, quite a big focus on unusual varieties of crops. And when we sort of started working with chefs, that's, they sort of increased more and more. So rather than just your, you know, take tomatoes for an example, rather than just a, a lovely red tomato that you might be able to get elsewhere, we've sourced seeds from, from all over that have lots of different um, flavour qualities, different sort of shapes and sizes and colours, all things that do grow here in the British climate, but that excel because of how they taste rather than other qualities like how well they store on a shelf or how they can kind of ship in a, in a lorry like maybe some other growers have to take into account and another thing of course is the soil so we uh, focus on having very healthy soil um, because of course everything that a plant comes from is the soil and so that really helps the flavor of the the produce that we're growing and i know that you're a sort of regenerative farmer and that's i suppose really a sort of step further on than being an organic farmer and i know that like organic farmers you don't use you know traditional pesticides but aren't pests a problem to you don't you lose a lot through that or are you just prepared to make that loss yeah so i think the first thing i'd say is we sort of do accept that we will have crop loss and we hope that because we grow such a huge range of different crops that if it's a bad year for something another crop might excel so say if it's a, a bad year for raspberries then maybe our winter salads or lettuces will thrive um, and that over the sort of long term or the yearly cycle that things do balance out a bit the other thing i'd say is we we do use a few things to combat pests um, we use these nets which people may sort of see in the fields when they visit the farm and those are sort of a physical barrier against certain insects, but also against the, the deer, the rabbits and the birds that are hugely annoying and come here <laughs> sort of as the flourish sort of salad bar for all the wildlife. Another thing we do is, is integrated pest management. So we will um, try and increase populations of certain insects like predatory wasps or ladybirds that will prey on things that are a real problem for us. Um, and the way that we do that is by making sure that there's flowers planted all over the farm so not just for our cut flowers that we sell but also for the wildlife when you say all over the farm they're sort of interspersed are they the yes flowers? yeah so we have them in our fruit in our fields we have them everywhere um, we leave some areas wild with wildflowers um, and the idea for that again is that they're a, a habitat for those um, in insects that are beneficial to us um, but also we do buy some of them in when they're in their sort of larva baby stage and do release those in in places like for example in the polytunnels where they might not be able to travel so easily from outside right so people who remember their school biology this is an example of biological control isn't yes, it exactly. yeah yeah and i know it's attracted a lot of interest and as a result you sell to a lot of really quite high-end restaurants don't you could you tell tell us where where in cambridge for example in cambridge you work with people like vandalile um, also restaurant 22 provenance kitchen are a few of the places but I have to say that majority at the moment of the people that we work with are in London so places like Brat, Somsa, Col, um, we work with quite a sort of broad range of different re uh, restaurants and different sort of culinary origins. Do they say to you why don't you grow this or do you say to them look we're growing this you might be interested <laughs> you know is there a sort of dialogue about what you grow? Yeah so you know over the years we've sort of got to a place where quite fortunately they do trust us to sort of 
grow what we um, think might work well in this climate and what we think might work well with them. Um, and I think the sort of trick is because we grow, you know, so many varieties, we're talking about, you know, 800 or so varieties. Wow. So it does mean that there's sort of something for everyone um, throughout the year. And, um, you know, we've, we do do some sort of requests but usually there's enough for everyone to kind of get what they want and have some fun experimenting. Yeah, 800 varieties. It's astonishing because yeah. it's not a huge farm, is it? No, so that sort of, that sort of cr- uh, crosses the spectrum of everything from cut flowers, root vegetables, you know, other sorts of vegetables, salads, flowers, um, garnishes. We also grow heritage grains. Um, so we are doing sort of these old varieties of wheat, which are really great for bakers and people who are sort of experimenting with different flavours in their baking as well. And, and you did that baking day, didn't you? In fact, you did, yeah. it, you did it twice, which yeah. uh, I couldn't come to because I was on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> Since you opened, which was five years ago, though it seems longer because your name is so well known, you've had to endure really some, I don't know what you'd call them, you know, events, catastrophes, traumas like lockdown and therefore, you know, the closure of restaurants. This year, a shocking drought, which really hasn't quite gone away. And also, we seem to be entering a period of high inflation. So what does that mean for your business? Well, I think like every business, it's been a very challenging time and it will probably continue to be quite challenging. I think one thing is, as a farmer... Um, when sort of the sort of very nature of what one does is dealing with the weather and dealing with the unknowns of the weather, one does sort of learn to have sort of a, a relative amount of resilience in terms of different different things that come one's way. And we've sort of had to learn that there will be ups and downs, and over the the year cycle or several year cycle that we will you know manage to carry on and keep going. Um, I do think one thing that's really important to mention, though, on that is that we sort of have been very lucky to have the ability to supply the people we work with directly. So it's a very, very short supply chain. It's sort of we are the producer and it goes to the end person who's going to be eating it. So and there I, aren't lots of people taking a right, cut so there's a no, Yeah, no middlemen along the way. And I do think that that's a very, very important thing and a special thing. It means that we have a lot more sort of strength within the system. There's a lot more transparency. Um, and we're able to kind of ride out those ups and downs by being able to communicate with people and, and have that kind of understanding. And I'm hoping that with the shop, that will be sort of extended in, in another way of being able to kind of work with people, you know, um, um, and supply people food via the shop in a way that's, again, very transparent and being able to have that dialogue of why are there no carrots right now? Well, there's no carrots because we had <laughs> carrot root fly and they ate them all, or that kind of thing. Yeah, and you've got a good relationship, I know, with restaurants because you've had quite a lot of their chefs come and volunteer here. Yeah. And you are open to, to non-chefs volunteering as yeah. well. Yeah, so we have been really lucky to have lots of people come visit the farm and, and do a day helping out. You know, we really are grateful to have the opportunity to do that in terms of being able to teach people and educate them and give them kind of a little taste about what it means to grow food. But also for us, it's amazing to have people from all different walks of life, um, you know, particularly chefs, because we learn so much when they come as well. Um, and so that's something that we're going to be doing on um, sort of ongoing, even into winter. And we offer people, you know, farm cooked lunch with what we have growing here as well. So you get a chance to sort of work outside and have something yummy in your tummy, yeah. hopefully, um, to keep you kind of fueled. Yeah, well, it sounds fantastic. OK, well, good luck to you, Calixta. I think it's a great thing you're doing. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks. Certainly is. That was Calixta Calanda at Flourish. 
Now, details of free food available in and around Cambridge. The information about what's available and where to get it comes from the Olio app, which exists so that people's or businesses' surplus food doesn't go to waste. Yeah, that's right. And today's look at Olio for Cambridge News shows us that Lily, she's on Queenie this way, and she has a bag of dried anchovies to give away. Now, they've been sitting in her freezer ever since she tried one. She realised she wasn't a fan. What about you, Sue? Do you like anchovies? Well, I tend to like them when they're done in oil, but mm. the dried anchovies, that sounds really quite interesting. Oh, I might be off after them. <laughs> yeah, I've never tried a dried anchovy. Yeah, I'm, I agree with you with the oil and the, oh, the saltiness. Lo- just gorgeous. Yes. It's lovely, and you can often put them with meat, and it gives that sort of umami, amazing depth of flavour to them. So, yes, yeah. mm, <laughs> I might be going down Queen Eda's way soon. <laughs> <laughs> well, meanwhile, Justnia has a 100-gram box of Polish Oplatek to give away. Now, I had a look at uh, what this was. Oplatek is the leading North European provider in the field of photonics with over 30 years of experience. Not edible. <laughs> no. So I looked again, and I found that Oplatek can also be a traditional white wafer decorated with Nativity and other Christmas scenes passed around the table at Christmas Eve. And that is what's being offered here. So if you're itching for some thin film coated optical fibres and moulded glass components, maybe you want to go and head over to oplatech.com and kickstart an all new Christmas tradition. And next up is Abby. Now, Abby lives in Mill Road. She's quite close to the Edge Cafe, a cafe which has got nothing to do with U2's one note guitarist. And Abby has three tins of soup available vegetable chicken noodle and cream of chicken. She's also got a box of Nescafe Gold Latte, which contains seven stirring sachets. Anna Lou, who lives off Milton Road, just before King's Hedges Junction, has a pack of Chinese herbal teas containing many tea flavours. And finally, Jane. Now, even though these items are gone, I do like to mention them because they're such good... I was going to say value. All of this stuff is good value. They're worth chasing because they, they come up regularly. They come up weekly, if not more often. And that are these Pret-a-Manger items. Now, usually there are loads of them, unsold rolls and things, which expire this day. So they're perfectly good. Someone would have been buying them at three to five pounds each only a few hours earlier. So in this example, Jane was the food champion. She was collecting the food and she had three salt beef sauerkraut and gherkin seeded bloom rolls, two tuna melt toasties and two brie and cranberry focaccia. Can you imagine the cost of that lot? So there we go. That was just a handful of the items which we found on the Olio app today. And another free app called Too Good To Go has unsold food from restaurants and shops, often at less than half price. And rather than specifying each leftover item, the surplus food is simply packaged as a magic bag, ready for you to take home instead of it being binned at the end of the day's trading. Okay, moving on now to our next feature. And a few months ago, I saw a grapevine growing in the centre of town. It was in the grounds of St Edward's Church. I walked past that church probably a million times over the last few decades. I've never seen it before, but it was full of dark, ripe grapes, and I thought, well, blimey, you know, fruit growing in the very centre of town. So I caught up with a lady called Megan. She attends to the church grounds as one of its volunteers. She got rid of the dense shrub that was there previously, and she planted that vine. There's a concept of visio divina, things to contemplate, And I thought it would be a good idea if we replaced all this overgrown shrubbery with a vine because it connects us to the outside from what goes on in the church and what goes on outside. And in this case, a vine was most appropriate because the god of theatre and the god of wine is Bacchus. St Ted's is actually the theatre church 
it's making a stronger connection really linking the theatre and the church and wine and the centrepiece is a cross and I am the vine ye are the branches is a well-known verse in the bible and also it gives us the option for giving the grapes away they're actually edible grapes and the first harvest we just gave it to passers-by but we could also make wine with it I think when you saw them in August, if I'd come along then, I probably could have (laughs) made some bear juice from it, but it was something I didn't read about until fairly recently. But next year, there's always next year. So it turns out that they grow quite a few things in this churchyard, and it's all things that the public are welcome to come and pick. So that's how come the vine is there. And when we planted it, we didn't plant a sheep in the hole. Mm. That's traditional in a vine, but we did plant a fleece. Do you remember? Yeah, it was really tough getting out the roots of the previous plant there, wasn't it? It was, yeah, heavy-duty stuff. So you said it's traditional to bury a sheep's carcass Mm. when you are planting a vine. I've not heard of that before. Yeah, to provide blood and bone meal Mm -hmm. (laughs) for one thing, and also the wool would be other nutrients. It's an old agricultural custom that's supposed to help the fertility of the the growth of the vine or something, yeah. On Twitter, Gareth Wynne-Jones says he's a sheep farmer and he's been using fleece to mulch his vegetables that he's growing Yeah, it's a lot more productive because it keeps the moisture in. As I say, it must be giving back nutrients into the soil. The idea is roses are also a good idea alongside vines. We just have to decide what would survive in this area. Mm. Maybe a dog rose, then we'd have rose hips that you could make rose hip syrup from. (laughs) 20 times the vitamin C of orange is what I was reading yesterday. Heading round to the east side of the church grounds, we passed by a large bay tree shedding its leaves. Around here, the idea was if we put the pieces of the bay on the earth, then as you walk on it, it releases the smell of the bay. Now that it's autumn, the bay leaves are quite long-lasting. It's nice that you can come and pick the leaves and, and crush them. Is that that what I can smell now? It's very strong, isn't it? Yeah, Mm. yeah, and the idea is if we could have a a sensory garden for all the senses, then it's a space that more people can enjoy. Mm. The relevance of the medlar tree here. Mm. Yeah, the council, they advised on which ones would work well in the churchyard in conjunction with the food aspect. And this one is a Prunus autumnalis, so it's a flowering cherry. It's really just for prettiness, but it flowers twice a year, so it gives a beautiful flower in the depths of winter. Mm. But the medlar, now they're coming to the stage where they'll be bletting. I'm told they have a big stone in the middle, so there's not actually that much edible part to it. But, mm. but they are um, edible. People do eat them. Yes. Yeah. 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 What do they or make? make? Is it medlar, medlar cheese, I think? Where cheese isn't what you imagine dairy, cheese just means a very stiff jam, mm. is how I would describe it, that you can slice. A bit like, um, you know, Membrio's the quince version, the Spanish, they eat Membrio with Manchego cheese, I think it is. Mm. So we must have an English equivalent <laughs> with the medlar cheese and I bet there's a, an actual cheese that goes with it. Maybe your listeners will be able to say recipes or what cheese they would eat it with or 
what else? It might be that it's a cold meat thing. Whether you take the medlars off the tree and let them in a bowl, I've heard some people just leave them on the tree and I guess the frost maybe do the work. Mm. Yeah, bletting, great Scrabble word. <laughs> Here we've got hazel. Have we ever picked nuts in the churchyard? I'm not sure that we have, but um, there's one or two that are able to grow taller and then we're coppicing. Because hazel is something that allotmenteers would know well for cutting to use as bean poles and the like. Mm, mm. But uh, yeah, there's quite a few here. When, once you get your eye in, you can spot them all over. <laughs> but, uh... Then we came across the ground elder, also known as the bishop weed was actually brought to this country by the Romans as food on the march for the soldiers. See, you treat it like a sort of spinach or salad vegetable. I think I need to look that up again. But anyway, it's quite pretty with sprays of delicate white flowers. I think I'd call it an edimental. Some people <laughs> just uh, regard it as an absolute fiend in the garden and try to get rid of it, but it is quite... Invasive? <laughs> yes, it, yes, it holds on in there. Does this count as something that you didn't choose to plant here? Um, it, was, it was definitely already here, and um, I think it's probably a, lesson, a life lesson there, isn't it? You, some things you just have to accept and work with. <laughs> How long have you been doing this job? Oh, difficult to say. Time just goes. <laughs> so, <laughs> I've been around a long time. So yeah, it's a good crop of crab apples. And this one is definitely loving its place. And it's grown so beautifully and it's huge now. A tree that was planted by the council for my grandson's birth. You know, they offer trees so you can have them planted wherever you like mm. if you're born in the city. So, and this is a crab apple with lots of lovely little red apples on it. The granddaughter, she actually helped dig the hole, didn't she? We got a yes. photograph of it with you. And so now we have to think what to make with the crab apples. I mean, obviously, the birds will help themselves, mm -hmm. but there's quite a few things you can make with it. Typically, crab apple jelly, I guess. Yes, that's lovely. Did you have crab apple jelly with rosemary in it? I thought so, yes, that's a good idea. Yes, and the other thing we do with the rosemary, of course, is um, that grows in the churchyard, is sprinkle it on the rug we have in the bell tower. Oh, yes. Because we're bell ringers. And we... moss, yes, it? yes. The Bible reference Ecclesiastes I think a lot of people would recognise, even if they don't know where, like me, <laughs> which exact verse it comes from, but it's to everything there is a season. And I think that's really important. We get back to that, to understanding what grows when and not expecting strawberries in January or, yeah, just appreciating the taste of things as they happen, like crab apples, and now, you know, I'm surprised how late in the summer apples are, and they're really an autumn thing, not a summer thing. They're at the back end of the fruit season, really. The path is strewn with little tombstones. Yes, so the churchyard, there's no burials of bodies now, but there's still burials of ashes that happens. Mm. In fact, I have known quite a few of these people, and, and, that, and that, I guess that's why... Yeah, Ge Gerald, I knew Gerald. Elizabeth Edwards, she was a sometime church warden is what she wanted on her stone. She was a librarian, I believe, and Phyllis, I knew all of them. And Celia was a pianist. Pianist, yeah. Yeah, and her husband, Richard, 
Oh, right next to him. Yeah, I knew him well. And um, this is naval architect. He, he, I guess that was his main thing. It, Richard had a double first from Trinity, and he was an orphan from the Spanish flu epidemic. He saved a lot of people from certain death in the war. He was an incredible guy. Yeah. Yeah, so I think the environment is one thing where all faiths can get behind looking after the planet. And, um, but uh, the, the rosemary here, now that's rosemary for remembrance. And in fact, that was in the Queen's flowers on the coffin, wasn't it? It had it was, rosemary yes. in there. Yeah. It's long been a plant associated with churchyards and people can pick it and uh, the bay leaves... There's no reason why people can't pick a piece to use in their cooking at home. It smells great and it grows furiously as well. Yes, (laughs) Yes, it does indeed. (laughs) We are thinking about how to look after the churchyard Hmm. um, going forward. And um, so, yeah, if there are any listeners who want to take part in working in the churchyard, then just get in touch, really. That's a good idea, yeah. Get in touch with the vicar is that is that Mark is the, is the best plan, Mark Scalata. Just come by here on a Sunday morning. Okay, well, thank you very much, Megan. Okay, pleasure. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Thank you. And you're listening to Flavour on Cambridge 105 Radio. So, there was plenty of things to be picked from the churchyard at St Edward's, or St Ted's as Megan calls it. Strawberries, cherries, blackberries, grapes, medlars, plums, rosemary, bay leaves, ground elder, St John's wort, clover and bird's foot trefoil, colloquially known as eggs and bacon, all free for the public to pick. Yeah, and if you fancy volunteering at St Edward's and helping Megan maintain the grounds, you can contact the Reverend Dr Mark Scalata. He's the chaplain of St Edward, King and Marta to give it its full name. So, thanks again, Megan and Penny and her son Luke, who you just barely heard in that feature, uh, but they are also volunteers at St Edward's. On to our first news briefing now, starting with events coming up at Market House in Cambridge's Market Square. There's a cheese tasting evening in the Market House wine bar at 6 pm on 10th of November. The event is presented by Emma and Camilla from the Cambridge Cheese Company and the cost is £48. There will be local apple juice and discount vouchers to spend at the Cambridge Cheese Company. On the 11th of November at 5pm, there's a coffee tasting masterclass. It's presented by Johnny, the coffee roaster from Brew Project in Ely, and it provides Market House with its coffees. Now, the class will take you through the taste profiles of coffees from different regions of the world. Your ticket includes a welcome coffee, the coffee tasting masterclass, and a tin of Market House specialty coffee beans. And the cost for that is £20. And Corinne Paye's Gourmandise Academy has two festive evening classes taking place in the food lab at Market House. On the 17th of November, a choux pastry baking class, and on the 24th of November, a tartlette baking class. Both start at 6pm and both classes include a glass of Chapel Down sparkling wine and warm cheese straws on arrival. The cost is £95 per class. All the events at Market House can be booked via Eventbrite. On to some wine news now. The Wine Rooms in Hills Road has a new online wine shop and you can have delivery to your door. Or there is a click and collect service from Hills Road. 
Tastings coming up at Amphora in Devonshire Road include Brazilian wines on the 2nd of November and Chardonnay on the 9th of November. They're both £30 per head and also vintage port with cheese is coming up on the 16th which is £60 per head. At Cambridge Wine Merchants in Bridge Street, there is, on the 9th of November, a masterclass hosted by Felton Road of Central Otago. You'll be exploring their Pinot Noirs dating back to the mid-2000s. The cost is £45 per person, including some light food, and you can book via one of the Cambridge Wine Merchant shops. And from wine to beer. Bad news from Cambridge's camera. The Winter Beer Festival has been cancelled. Well, the reason is to do with the closure of the usual venue, the University Social Club. Camera had booked the Guildhall instead, but there are some unresolved issues there. However, they have started planning for the Summer Beer Festival, so let's hope that goes ahead. In the meantime, various pubs off Mill Road are organising an alternative festival, which will run from the 9th to 12th November. Last time this was done, the pubs involved with the Alex, the Geldart, Cavalies, Cambridge Blue, the Blue Moon and the Petersfield, and between them they organised a huge numbers of beers for tasting. Calvary's Brewery has also announced a second venue. It's opening soon at the Engineer's House in the Museum of Technology and it's going to have a large beer garden and a cosy fireside parlour. There'll also be wood-fired pizza supplied by Al Forno. We mentioned this last episode but it's still relevant now and this one's for chocolate lovers. A branch of Noops is opening in Cambridge at the end of November. Noops is devoted to making the perfect hot chocolate drink and customers can choose to have their drink made from any one of 20 different types of chocolate covering a full range of cocoa solids. The chocolate is mostly single estate and comes from countries such as Peru, the Solomon Islands, Venezuela, Congo, Mexico and Colombia. They'll also be available selling chocolate milkshakes and iced chocolate. Not only that, but there will be coffees and teas available and a variety of baked goods to drink with them, including croissants, brownies, donuts and pestes donata. Noops will be at 28 Green Street. My Persian Kitchen, fresh from their recent success at the Kingston Arms pop-up, hosted by Pina Broccoli and Naya, they're popping up again, and this time you'll find them at Thrive in Norfolk Street. The date for that pop-up is the 29th of October. It'll be running from 5.30 to 8.30pm. You can reserve your table by emailing mpkcontactus at gmail.com, and we will have more news later, I think. Right now we're off for a two-minute break, and we will see you on the other side. I try to say quietly as I fumble around with the mouse trying to play my next file. (laughs) Monday evenings on Cambridge 105 Radio. Strummers and Dreamers with Les Ray. As there are so many different kinds of folk songs out there. Traditional ballads, shanties, work songs, songs by singer-songwriters of all kinds, my particular thing. You'll get live sessions and interviews by local performers and those from further afield, the big names on the scene and newly emerging independent artists. Lots of new music, some classics and something special just for you. Strummers and Dreamers online whenever you want it and Monday at 7 on Cambridge 105 Radio. Are you suffering from buffering? Find yourself screaming, not streaming? Or do you just lag behind? Then it's time to demand better broadband. City Fibre is building a brand new full fibre network across the UK, giving you access to broadband from a range of providers that's more reliable and up to 20 times faster than average. 
so you can stream, game and video call without interruption. Get connected to Full Fibre today. Choose your provider at cityfibre.com slash Cambridge 105. CKLG Accountants are a friendly team of accountants and tax advisors with big firm expertise. I'm Lawrence, Director of CKLG, responsible for business services. We understand that running a successful business brings many challenges. Our experienced business services team provide a bespoke service and offer professional advice at every stage of your business journey, allowing you the freedom to focus more on what you do best. To find out more, call us on Cambridge 810100 to arrange an initial chat with one of our specialists or visit our website cklg.co.uk cklg accountants your partner in business your partner in life cambridge 105 radio welcome back to flavor and it's time to catch up with steve thompson the foraging chef for another wild food forage we are well into October now, Steve, but it's been a very interesting month for what you can and you can't find. So tell me more about what's going on in the woods today. <laughs> I see. Yeah, so we're still bone dry. So we've had bits of rain around here, but Cambridgeshire being such a dry county as it is, the woods are just absolutely bare still, as far as fungi go, really. We've got some of the uh, deadwood growing funguses about, like dried saddles, but that really is about it at the moment. So we've been out checking our hen of the woods patches, we've been looking for parasol mushrooms, different agaricuses, uh, shaggy parasols, all of these which we'd expect to be up now and actually coming to the end, and they're not even showing themselves yet. That's strange, isn't it? And and you've been travelling around recently and hearing which other areas haven't haven't got mushrooms and we're not the only one no i was up in the uh, ken gorms actually and while there are signs of fungus and mushrooms around there there's nowhere near as many as other years when i go up there it's just gonna be one of those years i think mm, fortunately enough. we had such a dry summer everything's changed around i'm hoping that we'll see next time we talk we'll have had some more rain and we'll start to see signs of say trooping funnel mushrooms and field bluets but we'll have to wait and see shame because i was really hoping to go on one of your foraging mushroom tours but we'll as you said wait and see what is good at the moment then so what we are looking for at the moment is fruits nuts and shoots so we'll start off with the shoots we've got some nice leafy greens that are starting to come through so yeah hairy bit crest is one of my favorites at the moment kind of with a really nice peppery mustard flavor part of the brassica family lovely round leaves grows in a rosette You'll often find it in, like, drier flower beds, edges of pavements. I often get it in my pots. So all my pots and my herb pots always grow all that, so it's quite a nice little uh, secondary find. Backdoor foraging, exactly. <laughs> That's one of my favourite little ones at the moment, especially on, like, a nice crisp lunch, having egg mayo sandwiches with hairy bit of cress is just a lovely thing. Chickweed as well, another bane of the gardener. Chickweed's up everywhere. It's absolutely covered my garden. So that's a nice little one for uh, winter salads. And things like the nettles and the dandelions are coming through quite nicely as well, so we can make some nice soup still. I'm noticing there's certainly a few dandelions in the garden, so I won't just dig and dump. I shall dig and eat. Yeah, efficient gardening. Pull out the weeds and eat them. Exactly. As long as you know what they are. Yeah, so great year for acorns this year. They're absolutely everywhere. It's a master year for them. There's plenty of websites and YouTube videos on how to process acorns and make flour out of them and things like that. It's a lot of work. If you've got the time to do it, I think it's worth it. They've got a wonderful butterscotchy flavour and making things like sticky toffee pudding, substituting in some acorn flour is a real treat. Hazelnuts and stuff are just about over now. We're seeing sweet chestnuts, though, coming through. So they're sparse in Cambridgeshire. We don't have huge amounts of them, but if you find them... They're producing heavily again this year as well. And then fruits-wise, 
crab apples, I think, is a great place to start. Yes, there are so many crab apples. I mean, all these trees that you see by the verge, are they edible? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All of the apple family, they're all edible. So, yeah, all of your crab apples you see down the roadside, it's just such a waste of food. As you say, everywhere you drive at the moment, you can see apples on trees and crab apples and everything like that. We, we should be eating them. We're still, the amount of times you go to a supermarket or a shop and see people filling their sh- shopping trolleys with apples and things like that in there. And it's like, well, not filling their trolleys, but <laughs> they're using apples abundantly. And we should be just using them off the roadside. They're free and such a waste of food otherwise. Exactly. I mean, they're, they're so pretty growing by the side of the road. But And OK, the birds are going to eat them later on. What should we be doing with them? What would you suggest? For crab apples, because they're so small and fiddly, I would say things like jams are kind of the best thing for me cut them in half whack them in a pan somewhere between a third and half in weight inch jam sugar to be fair actually with apples you just need normal sugar because they contain enough pectin and just a splash of water to stop it catching take it up to 105 degrees and then you can blend it up and pass it i wouldn't even bother cutting out the pips and stuff like that the amount you're going to get in there is minimal and if you're going to blend it up and pass it after you've made the jam then it take the stalks off or doesn't that even matter i would take the stalks off really you could probably get road to take the stalks off couldn't you <laughs> the energy he's got today <laughs> yeah other grapefruit as well the slow bushes the blackthorn bushes are full of slows at the moment the tail of wait for the first frost to pick them is not one that i tend to adhere to uh, you're much better off just picking them and putting them in the freezer. What I do tend to wait to do, though, is wait till the leaves start to turn slightly yellow. Oh, that's a very good tip. Yes, because we were walking last weekend and noticed that you're beginning to see them really, really nicely. Yeah, Yeah, they start to, when the leaves start to turn yellow, I think it shows that the plant's putting its energy into the fruit and then reproducing. That's when, the, for me, the fruit is ready. I think with global warming and stuff, we could be waiting forever for our first frost some years. And mm. I don't think it's worth waiting for other fruits of note which we'll talk about more over the next coming months is things like hawthorns and rose hips which are starting to be available now and will be throughout winter and a nice little staple to keep us going with hawthorns they just look so pretty don't they but people again don't think about eating them do they no they're another fruit that is absolutely everywhere that goes to waste all the time kind of got a a very faint apple flavour to them with kind of more like a texture of avocado if you're eating them raw. Yeah, you just nibble around the pip in the middle. You don't want to eat the pip, but you nibble around that flesh is lovely. Uh, there's recipes on my Facebook page for Hawthorne hot sauce where we ferment them down with chilli and things like that, which is absolutely wonderful, make a Tabasco-style sauce. Yeah. So we make a lovely hot sauce with them. Um, another nice way to do it is you could add it in with your crab apples as well into a jam and make a nice little hedgerow jam with it all well. So we could add your crab apples, your slows, your rose hips, your hawthorns, and it stores lovely for winter. Yeah, perhaps next time we'll talk about what presents can you be making your friends come winter time because... Our daughter tends to do this. She and her husband love cooking and they love cooking and they love making jams and jellies to, to give to people, which I think is one of the nicest things to do. November is the perfect time for this. Start making gifts for Christmas, flavoured spirits, jams, chutneys, leathers, all that kind of thing. It's a really nice time to start doing it when the nights start to get really cold. Well, Steve, I'll look really forward to speaking to you in November about all the Christmas ideas. That'd be brilliant. Thanks, Sue. So, fruits, nuts and shoots seems to be the advice of the day. Many thanks to Steve Thompson. And don't forget that you can check out his website for information on his wild food tours, his pop-ups and his private caterings. There's also a new page up on a website called fooddevour.com. It was published 
last Friday, as in yesterday, if you're listening to our Saturday show. And it's about Steve's recipe for stew drizzled in chocolate sauce. Or, to give it its full description, venison and trooping funnel mushroom stew with sourdough barley, tunip and pine papadelle drizzled in hot chocolate oil. Another fine dish from Steve. Well... Time for a bit more news now. There's a festive party at Tivoli on the 22nd of December. We're not sure why they're not calling it a Christmas party. There will be mulled wine, hot chocolate, hot water bottles, blankets and big umbrellas. Inside the building will be Christmas films showing and carol singers from 7pm. So, yeah, a Christmas party. It sounds fantastic, doesn't it? It does sound fun. <laughs> <laughs> uh, on the subjects of festivals, Diwali, the Festival of Light, is here until tomorrow and Tower Kitchen is celebrating with a special festive tali on the menu. Now, they are based at 50 to 60 Station Road in Cambridge and the entrance is in Mill Park. Park Road. Sue, you went there recently. Yes, went at there a couple of evenings ago. Wow, it's a really buzzy place. You need to book it. Yeah. And the food is absolutely amazing. It's not your standard Indian by any manner of means. Really, really interesting. We'll certainly go again. Good stuff. So, if you fancy a bit of farming, moving on to something entirely different, CoFarm, the community farm by Coldham's Common, is looking for volunteers. There are three hour sessions available and they are on the 27th of October at 1.30pm for one hour, 30th of October at 10.30am and again at 1.30pm and then on the 3rd of November from 1.30pm. And you can book your place for any of these via the CoFarm website. Pudini has an Italian supper club on the 18th of November in Willingham. Tickets for that are £45 per person. And it's half term for schools next week. And Histon Smokehouse is offering half price on children's meals, including ice creams from 12 till 2 and 5 till 7. Yeah, and talking about half-term, Dolce's, the new gelato and pastatini shop on Rose Crescent, they're acknowledging the strains that some families may be under during this half-term, and they are happy to offer a free single scoop of their gelato to any child up to 11 years old uh, when their parent or guardian purchases a full-price gelato. And just to expound upon that, you know, their their gelato is gorgeous because I got to try some, and it's I, I've really not tasted anything else quite like it. I was really surprised. Sounds amazing. Yeah. Sounds amazing. And Market House, one of my new favourite places for food in Cambridge, is now open on Sundays for drinks and pastries from 10 till 4 and casual dining from 11 till 4. And the this, this first and second floor is open from 12 till 2.30 and 5.30 till 10.30. Cambridge City Council has vacancies on its markets in Market Square and in All Saints Garden in Trinity Street. So for details and applications, visit the website and that is cambridge.gov.uk forward slash markets. Parker's Tavern on Regent Street are celebrating Halloween this year with Chef Tristan Welch preparing a Halloween rubbish cooks menu featuring produce destined for the grave. This translates as a night highlighting the importance of challenging food waste, making a menu using items that were destined to be thrown away, rejected due to bad packaging or using wonky food or unfashionable offcuts that some supermarkets won't stock. And although this is Halloween-themed, Rubbish Cooks is also a monthly event that's proven incredibly popular. Tickets are £30 and you can book via their website, parkerstavern.com. 
In addition, Parker's Tavern are also hosting Jazz Nights. Now, this is every Friday until the end of November. They've got the Sam Miles Trio and the Andy Bowie Quartet playing there, two really well-known groups in Cambridge that we've often seen playing at venues like Hot Numbers and the Six Bells in the past. Could make for a really great night out. And Amelie, makers of the Flamkush that you would find in the Grafton Centre, have taken up residency at the Cambridge Cookery School and Café on Hills Road, next to the Sixth Form College. Amelie's father and son team will be running the café, providing brunch and lunch, with plans to open in the evenings too. Their signature Flamkush dish is a thin, light and yeast-free dough spread with creme fraiche and a tasty combination of toppings such as smoked bacon, gruyere, sliced onions and mozzarella or goat's cheese and beetroot with pine nuts and honey. And their Flamkush will now also be available at the cafe. And that's all the news for today. Okay, so moving on to our final feature, I had a look back through the Flavour archives and found... Well, this interesting piece with Tom Lewis. Now, Tom, uh, he used to be known as the Cambridge Wine Blogger, but these days he has a new website on medium.com and it's simply titled Tom Lewis. So he's dropped the Cambridge Wine Blogger moniker, although he still writes pretty feverishly about wine. His most recent article came out just a couple of days ago talking about Ribera del Duero 2019. But let's go back now to 2012, when the world was supposed to end, according to the Mayan calendar, and Alan asked Tom what advice he would have to offer to someone who wanted to become a little more adventurous in their wine drinking. Tom, we've talked before about a taste memory, and you've made the observation that some people just try a wine and simply either like it or don't. Yes, I mean, in my mind, that's essentially the difference between the wine enthusiasts and casual drinkers. But do you think perhaps there's a third category of people who might perhaps like to drink better wine, but, you know, they're not interested in becoming a wine geek, really? Yes, I certainly meet a lot of people who like the idea of trying better wines, but perhaps aren't sure where to start. And so maybe they, out of caution, what, go for the big brands at the supermarket and once they've found something they like, they, they stick with it, really? Well, I think that's rather sad, albeit understandable, if they do that, because there's so much more to wine than just big brands. We live in a world where reliability and standardisation have brought us huge benefits. I mean, my car starts every morning when I put the keys in because it's a mass-produced model. But to me, wine is different from that. It's an agricultural product. It's a product of the land. It's not Coca-Cola, and to me it shouldn't try to be. Coke is cheap, it's easily available, and it's always reliable. But that's not what a wine should aspire to. Rather, I think the interesting thing about a wine is that it's always slightly different from year to year, from region to region, even from vineyard to vineyard. That's quite a lot to take in, so where should people start? Well, as we've discussed before, there are certain classic styles. Bordeaux, Rioja, Champagne. We can use these as reference points. Each of these should have a certain typicity, a certain recognisable style. More of a general house style than a Coke-type standardisation, then? Exactly. It's more of a general family resemblance than a carbon copy, we could say. Mm, Well, that's interesting, because it seems that, in your mind, the idea of a big brand wine goes against everything you find interesting about wine. I'm afraid it does. These are blended, standardised wines with no sense of place or of individuality. Now, that's not to say they might not be well enough made as a wine, and taken individually, they can be quite pleasant to drink, but they're clones rather than individuals. Yeah, so they perhaps don't have quite as much interest. So what if somebody wants to try some wines with more of this individuality? You know, where would they start? Well, the first place to start, I think, is with an acceptance that if you want a bit more individuality, the wines are going to taste different. I know that's rather obvious, but if you genuinely want consistency in a wine, then supermarket big brands perhaps are the right place for you. But 
if you want a bit more variety, the best place to go would be one of our local independents in Cambridge. Now, perhaps the best place to start is something which similar to what you normally buy, but costing a few pennies more. I'm afraid that individuality, subtlety and a sense of place will cost a few more pennies. Do you think people might be put off by the idea of going to an independent if they've usually or always before bought at a supermarket? I think that's understandable. Supermarket aisles are anonymous places where it's easy to browse without anyone potentially exposing your lack of knowledge. By contrast, a wine merchant will hopefully want to help you and therefore will ask you a few questions in order to do that. So what sort of things might you be asked? I suppose it depends how much information you give them to start off with. The things that I'd suggest you'd want to know are, firstly, budget. How much are you looking to spend? Now, a generous merchant generally won't have anything under below six, maybe even eight pounds. So don't go in with a price point of under a fiver in your head. That said, I think it's perfectly acceptable to say, I'm not looking to spend a lot of money and, say, seven pounds really is my upper limit. The next thing to think about is colour, red, white or rosé, and also sweet and fizzy as well. Then we move on to occasion. Essentially, that's with either having it with food, and if so, what food, or just casual drinking. Right, so we've narrowed it down quite a lot, and we haven't even begun to talk about countries or grapes. That's right. At this point, you might pretty much have your wine sorted. If your budget is, say, £7 for a wine to have with a roast beef Sunday lunch, a merchant might suggest a basic Rioja, for example. You mentioned earlier not straying too far from the, from the usual initially. That's true. If you normally drink, for example, Australian wines, then I would definitely mention that, um, as these are generally a bit riper and a bit more fruit-forward than European wines. And what about mentioning grape varieties? Well, to me, the grape reflects its place of origin, and moreover, grapes need specific conditions to thrive. So the place often defines the grape. Bordeaux is mostly Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot. Burgundy is Pinot Noir, for example. That's quite a traditional view, though, isn't it? Often wines are labelled by grape variety. That's true, actually. It probably is. I mean, the grape has its own character, of course, and it expresses the character of its origins, so it's a bit of both. To me, it's a bit like a great line from a film. It becomes hard to separate out the line from the way the actor delivers it or the context of the film. So the grape variety, the sense of place, the way the wine is made are all overlaid and form part of a whole. And what about varieties? Are there any general rules we can apply? Well, yes. I mean, grapes clearly have their own character, um, but often regions express it in a different way. So New Zealand Marlborough Sauvignon is very different from Loire Sauvignon, for example. So it's hard to generalise, but certain grapes are wa- more widely grown and more reliable than others. So Chardonnay and Sauvignon for whites, Merlot, Cabernet Sauvignon and Syrah, or Shiraz, for reds. Now, Chardonnay is a highly versatile grape, and it comes in a whole range of styles, from a steely, minerally chablis to a ripe, fruity, oaky new world. So we can't expect every Chardonnay to taste the same. And Pinot Noir is perhaps the most mercurial of the classic grapes, and it's often the most expensive. So whilst it's many wine lovers' favourite, it's perhaps not the best place to start. Right. So how would you sum up... Well, I suppose what we're saying is, for any novice enthusiasts out there who want to expand their horizons a little, get to one of the Cambridge independents, so Cambridge wine merchants, Noel Young, Bacchanalia or Joseph Barnes, and ask for some advice. But before you go, set a budget, think about the wine-drinking occasion, and be able to describe what you normally drink, in general terms. It could be New Zealand reds, it could be oaky whites, that sort of thing. Any other advice? Well, there's a couple more good questions you can have up your sleeve um, that you might want to ask the merchant. The first one is, what do you think of this wine? The merchant should have tried the wine and should be able to give you an opinion on it. The second one is, is this a popular wine? Is it a big seller? 
obviously the more popular wine, the more chance there is that you'll find something that you like. Yeah, well, that sounds like useful advice, and maybe we'll get a bit of feedback from our listeners to, uh, to see how it's gone for them. Good, I hope so. Great. Thanks very much, Tom. Thank you. Well, that was Tom Lewis, who describes himself as a professional bean counter and amateur wine writer, with some good advice there for branching out into the wide world of wine. And there's the music signalling time for news from the social media. There's a tweet from Jacob at Rotisserol, who's based in Eddington Square from now until two, so move fast, with his rotisserie chicken, porchetta and jackfruit. Congratulations to Amelie Restaurants. They're makers of the Flum Couche. They are a runner-up in the Observer's Food Monthly Awards. And an interesting tweet from BBC Radio 4 Good Food Programme. There's two local people involved here, B. Wilson, who set up Taste Ed Feed, mm-hmm. and Nyab. And they're both in the running for, basically, innovation awards from BBC Food Programme. Good stuff. Just finally, a little shout-out to the Edge Cafe at the bottom of Mill Road. They've just tweeted their Halloween menu. For £15 per person, you get Witch's Brew with Hobgoblin Eyes and Toasted Toenails, Vampire Fang Bangers, Mud and Slime Mess, and, of course, coffee and tea. There's Green Onion signalling the start of our jobs section. And Pudini in Willingham needs a head chef, and there are very attractive conditions of work. No working from Tuesdays to Saturdays and no split shifts. For more info and a full job description, and to apply, email info at pudini.co.uk. Flourish Farm Shop have full and part-time positions available, and a love of interesting produce is essential. Here's Calixta from Flourish. We are looking for, you know, looking ahead for next year, it might seem a little early, but we're looking for some more growers to join the farm, but also we're looking for people to come in and work in the shop as well. Okay, and that starts at the beginning of November. Yes. If you're interested in applying for one of those jobs at Flourish, you can email flourishfarmshop at gmail.com. Fansits are looking for front-of-house staff. It's 10 to 20 hours a week, and applicants must be aged 18 or over. There are vacancies for commie chefs at Trinity College and King's College, and for chefs at Sticks and Sushi. A chef is also needed at Bills in Green Street, including a vacancy for a breakfast chef there. In addition, an apprentice chef is required at St John's College, closing date for that one, 24th of October. And a grill chef is needed at Byron's and a pizza chef at Aromi. Sous chefs are needed at Scott's all day, and to be quite honest, I'm not surprised because I cycled past there this morning and they were jam-packed, with a queue coming out the window. Oh, I just knocked the microphone there. (laughs) Uh, Also, sous chefs are needed at the Orita and at Bill's in Green Street, and a junior sous chef is needed at St John's College. You better be quick if you're interested in the St John's College job, though, as that has a closing date of the 24th of October. And finally, a chef de partie is needed at Magdalen College, and a head chef at Prana on Mill Road. All of which brings us to the end of today's programme. And you can catch Flavour on alternate Saturdays at 12 noon, and we are repeated on Mondays at 6pm and Thursdays at 2pm. Flavour, of course, will be available as a podcast early next week. 
And coming up on Cambridge 105 Radio today at 1pm is The Gadget Guide with Robin Lawrence and at 2pm it's Sue Marchant's selection. But that's all from us. We'll be back on the 5th of November with lots more food and drink news, jobs and features. So until then, goodbye. goodbye. <laughs>